Well, good evening. You can get started and go and open your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, if you'd like. So we just looked briefly this morning, kind of a overview of the chapter to hit the high points and to hit really the the get the great takeaway, what we want to take away from this uh, epistle, what we want to take away in our own daily life, and how. Uh, this isn't just a means to gain knowledge or to have understanding, but that it's supposed to have an impact on our lives and to change our character, to be more like Christ, uh, to proclaim the gospel, to go out and to uh, labor for him in the time that we have. Um, we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter um, at this point, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go through a little bit uh, more in detail uh, this evening. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Reads, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. It's a very complete chapter. Um, it has a very strong beginning, and he's dealing with the, the heart of the issue that was plaguing the, Thessal the Thessalonians. And then he ends with a, really an exhortation and a prayer. And he kind of sums up the, this whole topic in uh, 17 verses that we have here. It's really a nice little picture of how things should be addressed when we are confused uh, when we are troubled. Um, so many times in this chapter, Paul goes back and tells them, you already know this. Remember, I told you when I was with you. Um, and he's exhorting them not to be soon shaken, not to be disturbed by this teaching or doctrine or things that appear to be from them, but to really hold fast to what they have received already. And that's really the exhortation that we have many times when we're shaken in our faith or we're um, confused about how things are going to be, is to hold fast to what we know is true. And to what we know is true is that God had a plan, that God had a, a purpose in, in sending his son to be the substitute, 
the sacrifice for us in our place, that God would pour out his judgment upon him, and that we would escape the wrath of God. We have this term that we use, and it's called being saved. We often talk about the fact that we're being saved from sin. Well, we're being saved from punishment. We're being saved from the wrath of God because Christ took that punishment, took the wrath of God for us. So this is something we're being saved from, uh, this punishment. This is why it, it is difficult, people that have the belief in the fact that the church will go through the tribulation period. If the tribulation period is God's judgment and wrath being poured out on the world, then in a sense, the sins that we've committed are being paid for twice. Christ paid for ours, and now we're going to have to pay a little for ours as well. And so that's why it doesn't really jive with this whole theme we had in 1 Thessalonians, where he says, God has not appointed you for wrath, but salvation through Jesus Christ. God's appointed us for a life with Christ away from the wrath of God. So as we go through this, um, one thing we wanted to do that I didn't do this morning because the time was short, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to take the coat off. <laughs> I'm not going to fall in the pool, though. <clears throat> what, we, what we are going to do is we're going to go through a, uh, just a couple verses in different passages to see you know, where we get the ideas that we have, the belief that we have. We're going to look a little bit in Daniel. We're going to see where this idea of this seven-year tribulation comes from. Um, we're going to look at this man of lawlessness and see that uh, throughout time there was uh, pictures of this, what this man of lawlessness would act like given in historical times, that God was very um, eager to point out, this is the type of person that opposes me, that exalts himself. This is the, a picture, really, of this, this man that will come, that will be the one, this willful king that exalts himself. So if you could turn to Daniel chapter 9, it's really just one verse we're going to look at. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is one of the great uh, chapters of the Bible. It begins with an amazing prayer. Uh, there's, there's these uh, prayers that you have in, in Daniel, in um, Ezra, and in Nehemiah, these great prayers of the Old Testament saints. Um, it begins with this great prayer, and it ends with this uh, amazing prophecy that really details the history of the children of Israel and God's dealing with them. And what we do see is that in this, it's called the 70 weeks prophecy, and it's this idea of 77s, 70 weeks of years. So it has this timeline that's broken out. It begins, if you have been here from my teaching through Nehemiah, it begins with uh, Artaxerxes' command to Nehemiah to rebuild the city and to rebuild the roads, and it goes all the way up into this time when Christ is then cut off, when Christ is killed. And then you can see this idea that there's this period of time that takes place, and then there's seven years left, this final week. And so we're going to look at uh, Daniel 9, uh, verse 26. It says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So it gives this prophecy that's taking place that this, it has this term that's being used, it says the prince, <clears throat> 
the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will be with the flood. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So we do see that the whole city was destroyed, um, but there's no covenant that's taken place. There, there's no um, relationship with the Jewish people where they've begun um, their sacrifices again after that. So what we do have here is we have this point in time that's in pause according to this calendar. And it will begin when this lawless one, the man of sin, the Antichrist, makes a covenant with the children of Israel and we see the temple sacrifices begin again. And three and a half years into that, this man of sin walks into the temple and sits himself, it says, on the throne as he is the most holy to be worshipped as he is God. Um, this is what uh, uh, prophecy explains to us as what to take place. That's why we have a seven-year period. The time that's referred to of the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble is the last three and a half years of that period. So just so you know, the, the difficulty comes with when we talk about the rapture is people think that the rapture is what kicks off this time of tribulation. But what we see in 2 Thessalonians, you can go ahead and turn back there. In 2 Thessalonians... <clears throat> chapter 2. This is what we're going to look at, the fact that Paul is telling us two things that have to take place before the day of the Lord comes, and the rapture was already dealt with in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. And so we talked about this morning, if the apostle was writing to the Thessalonians to encourage them, um, it would be a strange encouragement to say that, yes, you're going through great persecution, Yes, you are suffering greatly at this point in time, but don't worry, it's going to get way worse when the tribulation comes. And you're going to wish you had this joyful time that you think is bad, but you're going to wish for this time that you're in. We understood that not to be a very encouraging message. And obviously the people did not believe that they would be around for the tribulation because they wouldn't have been so troubled at the point in time if they felt that they were supposed to go through the tribulation. So <clears throat> the first thing Paul does, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So just real briefly, because I see totally different faces than we're here this morning. Um, so real briefly, uh, word had come, either a prophetic word, a, a false prophet, uh, a word given in a message or perhaps one-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, to different people, and a letter that appears could have been forged, um, that supposedly from the Apostle Paul. And these people were encouraged not to um, despise prophets, prophecies in First Thessalonians. At the very end, they're told not to despise prophetic utterances, but they were also told to test these things. And so we see that maybe they had this struggle in the testing of whether or not this was true, and so this led to this confusion, to this distress. And so Paul tells them, don't be shaken by this. It says, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the apostle is now going to give definite markers so that this won't happen again, so that this confusion will not take place. First thing he tells them is that the great rebellion, the great apostasy, the great falling away has to occur first. And we talked about how if the church is taken out and is raptured, you will have an entire world with really no 
testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be immediately a, a complete rebellion. We already see the rebellion taking place in the Christian church at and by and large, in a sense, but it's not a wholesale, complete falling away that will take place at this point in time. So you see, you see pictures of what could take place. Um, you know, you think of this thing with, uh, um, you know, abortion in the United States, and then you hear preachers saying that, well, you know, this is just something that we're, we're going to have to allow, and it's the woman's choice, and she has precedence, and it's like, you know, a, a, complete, a complete abandoning of, of moral truth uh, takes place. We see if the church was not here, I mean, everyone's going to be thrilled. Everyone's going to have a, a grand old time at this, and we'll see the complete rebellion at that point in time. So unless the falling away comes first, and two, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, we, we, I talked about this with a couple of people after the meeting. You know, Satan does not know the time that this will take place. So Satan will always have a man that is prepared to step into this position the minute God allows it, the minute it's open. Satan has his man. So throughout history, there's been a number of people that they have associated with being the Antichrist. Um, Hitler, Mussolini, a uh, number of people in the medieval times uh, associated with it. And you have, <clears throat> it's not to say that if God had not acted, that those people would in fact not have been the man of sin or the lawless one. It's just saying that we won't know who he is until he's revealed. And Satan doesn't know when he's going to be revealed, so Satan always has to have a man that is, is ready to go. So what identifies this man, this one that everyone is going to flock to? It says that he is the man of sin, he's the son of perdition, he's one that opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So not only uh, the God that we worship in, in God the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit, not just the God we worship, but all religions, all groups of believers, he will exalt himself above everything that there is that is worshipped. When you have this idea of the man of sin, uh, we contrasted it this morning with the Lord our righteousness, the one that is holy, the one that is pure. This one is the complete opposite. Uh, one who opposes and exalts himself uh, is the complete opposite of our Lord and Savior who humbles himself, who is meek, um, who is lowly, who comes in the form uh, of a servant. And it says that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he is one that goes and claims this place for himself, unlike our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who left his throne in heaven to come and to be a sacrifice for us. This man is the complete opposite of everything we love about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This man is, the, is one that only does what exalts him. And our Savior is the one that only does what humbles him that we may be exalted. The complete opposite. So when you think of this, it, 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 it's impossible for us to understand in those terms that this will be a person that people will flock to. But Paul continues, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So 
what we have here is, a, like we talked this morning, there's a many different theories or interpretations <clears throat> on who this one is that restrains <clears throat> and how he will be taken out of the way. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that when Christ was here and Christ was about to go to the cross to be cru crucified, he met with his disciples and he told his disciples, I go to the Father and I will ask of him to send the Comforter and he will send the Comforter and the Comforter will bring to mind all the things that I have taught you. He meant it in the sense that we see at Pentecost where there is a coming of the Spirit in power to indwell and fill a believer and to stay with a believer, to seal a believer. It's something that hadn't taken place before. We see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times coming upon a person and then leaving a person. We did not see the coming of the Spirit as in Pentecost and the staying, the indwelling in the believer. And so when you have this time, when you have this rapture that takes place, you have the Spirit in its working in and through us as believers being removed. Now, we want to be clear, the Holy Spirit is not taken out of the world. The Spirit is omnipresent just as God is omnipresent. But it's this idea that he's taken out of the way. A lot of times we, we just kind of read right past that. We think, oh, you know, he's taken out of the world. He's not taken out of the world, he's taken out of the way. In the sense that now the church is being removed and you have left the entire world open to believe this lie, to believe this delusion. And that's what takes place. <clears throat> so it says this, uh, the lawless one will be revealed at that time. So we talked earlier, uh, some of us did, that we can have an idea of who the lawless one is, who this man of sin is, but we will not know until he's revealed, and he won't be revealed until we're gone. So you can't know for sure who this person is because we don't know. You know, the future is that thing that we don't know because it hasn't happened yet. So that's kind of the way uh, it works for us. We have this idea now. <clears throat> it says in verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, and it's like immediately as he's revealed, it says, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Um, it's a very brief mention in this passage. As soon as he's revealed, um, the Lord consumes him and destroys him. You'll get a number of people, some come to your door, as we talked about this morning, that believe we're in the time of the Great Tribulation. They'll identify the Antichrist. Some will have a picture of this as uh, the Emperor Nero, that Nero was the Antichrist, and this is all dealing with past things. And Mark brought up a great point the last time. He says, okay, so when did the Lord come back and destroy him and consume him with the word of his mouth? And we say, well, that didn't happen. I say, well, then, you know, he, he's not the Antichrist. He's not the one that this is talking about. We have an idea of this man will be revealed, this man will be destroyed by the Lord himself when the Lord comes back. This is the, this is the scripture as we, we see it here. It says he will destroy him, consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And this word coming, this is a parousia. It's a, a word that is used often of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the second coming. But it's also used of this idea right here. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Um, what we see with Satan is that he tries to imitate everything that God is doing. And he imitates it in such a way as to get you to believe the lie and forsake the truth. And we have to think of that in our own life. If you see Satan working throughout the scripture, he will tell you a, a half-truth, but he always wants you to believe the wrong half. The point of him telling you a half-truth is to tell you something that you know, 
and then to believe something that isn't true. So when he's talking to Eve and he says, you know, she says, oh, I can't eat of the fruit unless if I touch it or if I eat it, I'll die. And then you, you hear Satan say, you know, you won't surely die, but God knows in the day you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, there was a truth in the sense that he will, they will know the difference of good and evil, but the lie was that she is going to die. So because she misunderstood the scripture and she touched the fruit and she didn't die, she felt that Satan was telling her the truth. So it's more important for us to know the scripture that we wouldn't be shaken when these things come because the Satan will use certain things to make us believe what he wants us to believe. So this is what's taking place uh, for them at this time. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Uh, again, an imitator. Uh, Satan has power. He uses power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to work miracles. Uh, this person is going to do miraculous things, and we're going to see that people are going to flock to this man and believe this man. Um, we ask ourselves, how could anybody fall for this? And it gets into it in this verse here. It says that with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is what we were talking about this morning. The one thing we wanted to take away this morning is that there's coming a time when it's going to be too late for people. There's coming a time when if the, the church is removed, if the man of sin is revealed, and they have heard the gospel and rejected the gospel, they will believe the lie. They will not have an opportunity to be saved, these people. So the question is, can anybody be saved in the Great Tribulation? So turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. This is after um, the sealing of the 144,000. We'll go ahead and read the first few verses, I guess, of chapter 7. Um, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And it gives a list. And then we see in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered 
saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." There's going to be a multitude saved during this time of the Great Tribulation that is so big that no one can number them, just in that time period. And you think, how is that possible? And it's because of this time of persecution, this time of judgment, this time that these are the people that were not deceived by the lie because they hadn't heard the gospel before. But now in the midst of all the wrath of God being poured out on the world, the gospel then comes to them and these people receive it. And we see that there's a, a number of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue standing before the Lord. So don't lose heart. God's arm is not slack that he cannot save. But there is a time for the people that are here that have rejected the gospel that if they do not accept, they will not accept. They will not have opportunity. And that is what to, is supposed to motivate us. More than knowing the, all the facts and knowledge of how this all works out, you need to go out into your, your neighborhood, your place of work, your friends, your family, those that you've been praying for for all these years, and you need to fervently pursue them with the gospel because there's a time that comes when it's too late. Go ahead and turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Um, so I'm sorry I had you turn back, but go ahead and turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. There's two proclamations in this um, chapter that deal with this prince of Tyre or this king of Tyre. And it's not just dealing with the king of Tyre. I guess we'll put it that way. <clears throat> it says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God. Though you set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, there. Therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god? But you shall be a man and not a god in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord your God, You are the seal of perfection, 
full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore, I brought fire from your midst, if I, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. He has this, um, we see that this one that exalts themselves. And the question I want to ask you today is, when you look at your own character, when you look at your interactions with people, what you strive for in life, is your character more in line with the person of Christ or this man of sin? What is the message that you're giving out to the people when you go out with this message of the gospel? Is the message that you're giving them that you're doing this for your own benefit, for your own, or is the message that you're doing it for them? You're there to give, you're there to share. Do you even give the message? Are you satisfied with what you have for yourself and your own concerns, your own comforts? Paul is not simply writing this to correct the air, to correct air for air's sake. He's writing it because it is impacting the Thessalonians' daily life. And what we believe impacts our daily life. So we have this man of lawlessness that has been revealed. We see that he will be destroyed, but we see that he will take a great many with him when that takes place we see that it's because of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he calls you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which were taught you, whether by word or our epistle. So he ends with this exhortation. This is what's going to happen to people that rejected, that did not believe. It says, but, but you are bound to give thanks to God always. And it gives this picture of salvation that goes from the beginning of time all the way until the end. Everything that God intended. It says that because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How do we know that God chose us from the beginning for salvation? Say, I don't know. Because he sent his son. Because God had this plan in place that he would create everything knowing that he would have to send his son to die in our place. That from the beginning, he realized that we were going to disobey, that we were going to go astray, but God 
loved us so much that he was willing to do all this so that his son could come and die for us, chose us from salvation from the beginning. It says that he chose us through the sanctification by the Spirit. Now, we can often take this for after salvation, but we think of the idea of how the Spirit is working in the world today to continue to bring us the message, to prepare our hearts, to get us into the right mindset to be saved. And then we see the, our responsibility in this point and belief in the truth. So God has prepared everything. God has established everything. God has his spirit in the world that would work in, in and around us so that we would be saved. What's our responsibility? To believe the truth. To receive Christ to accept this free gift of salvation. All the work has already been done. But it's our responsibility. There's something that you do have to do. It is a conscious choice to receive Christ. And we talk about this all the time um, in, the, in this idea of marriage. When I asked Kathy to marry me, I chose Kathy. Kathy, will you marry me? She had to say yes. She had, to, she had to be a part of this establishment of this relationship for this relationship to occur. If she said no, I chose her. She didn't choose me. Does that make sense? So when you have this relationship that is established, you see God's working from the beginning of time to bring about everything that he's planned in redemption through Jesus Christ. But the message goes out. You either believe in the truth or you reject the truth. We see what happens to those that reject the truth, what happens to those that believe the truth. It says, To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is something amazing in the fact that God desires <laughs> to share everything he has with us. God, who has, has everything is abundant, is greater than anything we can imagine, has this desire to pour out blessing upon us. And you look at us and you say, if you really look at yourself, you say, but I'm wicked. I'm evil. I only think about myself. I only think about what I want to do. When we have these conversations of where we're going to eat, Kathy and I, they are the most painful conversations that you could ever imagine. And you go back and forth and back and forth. And you want to be humble. You want to say whatever you would like. And then she says, I'd like this. You say, no, I don't want that. And then she says, well, then you pick. And I say, I feel like this. And she says, no, I don't want that either. And it just, it's this battle within us where it's like, I don't want to give in. I still want what I want. You, you have this idea that God has, has planned everything out for us that he would be able to bless us in such a way even though we are what we are. And now we are what we are by the grace of God, by everything that Christ has accomplished, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. He has this thing, it says, uh, so you have the, the sanctification of the Spirit, you have belief in the truth. How did he do it? He called you by the gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what? So what? So he did all this, we have all this, this is fantastic. It says, therefore, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, we look at traditions in the Christian church kind of as a negative thing at times, especially the younger people, like, you know, younger than me, but up to my age, maybe. You have this idea that uh, traditions are bad, 
and you want to break with tradition. Paul is telling here that they are to stand fast and hold to tradition. So how do you know what to hold to and what not to hold to? Well, what we would call biblical tradition, uh, a tradition that has its founding and its establishment in the scripture itself. We have traditions at this chapel. When we pass the emblems and we bring the bread back, we bring the wine back, we put a white cloth over the bread. For no reason at all. We like the way it looks. We like what it symbolizes, whatever it is. But there's nothing in the scripture that says, after you do this, you must do this. It's a tradition we've developed. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. Is it good? No, it's not good either. It's just how we do it. We have, uh, there's places where you go and for the breaking of bread, they're set up in a circle around the emblems because Jesus should be the center of the worship, the center of the focus. Is that a biblical tradition? Does it say you have to sit up in a circle around the emblems? No. Is it good? No. Is it bad? No. It's just a tradition. We have things that are called biblical traditions. We can't forsake those. It is as important what Paul is telling them that they would know the truth, but also how to do it. How to be a Christian, how to walk in newness of life. There are certain things that Paul wanted to make sure that we understood how to live this out. So it's not so much what we know, but how we act out what we know how it changes our character to be more like Christ. And if you ever wonder, I wonder if this is the right way you're supposed to do it, you just look to Christ. Is this how Christ is? Is this in line with his character? Is this what he ordained or established through the scripture? And we can know for sure this is how we're supposed to do it. And we try our best. Do we succeed all the time? Of course not. But the point is that you're always working together with one another to go back to the scripture and to hold fast to these traditions. When you see it in today, every battle that is taking place in the church is a battle to either rid tradition or to keep tradition. We have to ask ourselves, is this biblical tradition or is this just tradition that we've established? But Paul is telling them to hold fast. Why do we hold fast? Because everything that God has done and intended for us, we have a responsibility now to hold fast to these things because he bought us. We belong to him. We are not our own anymore. When we had this baptism this morning, they said, I have died in Christ and I have raised in Christ and now I live for Christ. We have to live it out. It's our responsibility. And I won't say any more on that. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. We have the final commendation in this chapter. Uh, he, it's interesting, this is uh, really one of the only places, I think it is the only place where Paul will normally say, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He always puts God the Father first in this, in this order. In this one, he puts the Lord Jesus Christ first. Just an interesting note that they are at on equal level, that uh, they are um, equal in Godhead. So we have this establishment. Paul puts in, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Um, we talked about the fact that you see... Um, um, faith, love, and hope 
in the Thessalonians in the first epistle. Uh, and the second one, when he's speaking to them, he doesn't mention hope. It's like they've lost their hope. And he's trying to restore this hope that they have in Christ and his coming. Uh, to restore the surety that they have when they believed before, before they got confused by this false doctrine. So everything Paul is doing is to establish them that they can stand firm in everything that's been passed down to them. And it's the same exhortation we have this evening. Don't let the, these, these things that come into your life persuade you to abandon the hope, the faith, and love we have in Christ. There are so many times when life gets hard, as for these people, life was hard, and you just say, what's the point? I want to give up. I'm tired. I don't want to go anymore. I'd just rather worry about myself instead of worrying about what God thinks of me. Don't give up. Don't go that way. There's, there's nothing good that comes out of it. We have here this, this exhortation. Uh, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Everything we do and say. It's important that we do both. Um, we should have a word that goes out and there should be work that follows. Uh, it's an exhortation because of all that God has done for us. All that we have in Christ. We have a responsibility now to serve him in such a way. We'll go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee uh, for this time that You've given us just to open Your Word, to be comforted by Your Word. And Father, we pray for anyone here that has not trusted Christ, that has not put their faith in Him, that has not been born again, that has not been saved uh, from the wrath to come. Um, Father, we ask that You would just touch their hearts by Your Spirit. We ask that You would bring them to a point where they would have to make a choice. Um, whether to believe the truth or to reject the truth. And Father, as we've gone through the consequences of rejecting the truth, may you by your spirit put upon them an understanding of the, the dire circumstances of those who reject the truth and to see all of your love and all of your goodness that is displayed in sending your son to die in their place as their substitute, that he would shed his blood, that their sins would be forgiven. So, Father, we do thank you for this time we have as brothers and sisters here to be encouraged. We pray that it would not just be knowledge that is received, but knowledge that is received and then acted upon. We pray that our character would be in line with that of thy son. We pray this in his name. Amen.